0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: What happened is that I began to write more about myself and about my own life and my own journey and reflecting on the ways that I had experienced God's presence in my own life story. And she began to respond to this. And in turn, I think for the first time in her life, really looking back and asking questions about her own story because she'd always lived in the presence of God. And she thought that was all that mattered.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to Patreon.com/NotSeenRadio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/NotSeenRadio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're going to be talking about a recent book called Dearest Sister Wendy: A Surprising Story of Faith and Friendship. It's a book that collects a series of letters between Sister Wendy Beckett and Robert Ellsberg. Sister Wendy Beckett was a consecrated hermit who lived on the grounds of the Quiddenham Carmelite Monastery in England. She's best known for her commentaries on art, both in the television series Sister Wendy's Odyssey and in many books. Robert Ellsberg is the publisher and editor-in-chief of Orbis Books. He's the editor of five volumes of writings of Dorothy Day and the author of many books on saints, including All Saints, The Saints' Guide to Happiness, and A Living Gospel, Reading God's Story in Holy Lives. Sister Wendy passed away, unfortunately, in 2018. We'll be speaking today with Robert Ellsberg. Robert Ellsberg, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, Dave. So I, I was so enraptured by these letters, this correspondence between you and Sister Wendy Beckett, but it occurs to me that some of my listeners may not know who she was. So I think that's the right place to start. Why don't you give us a little overview of the life and work of Sister Wendy?
1: Well, certainly. Sister Wendy became a very famous, in the 1990s, as you mentioned, when she was discovered by the BBC and given her own television program, Sister Wendy's Odyssey. She would travel around uh, to museums and just walk about and uh, call attention to various uh, paintings or sculptures that interested her to talk about them. And it was also in the United States on PBS. And she became a very unlikely celebrity for some years because uh, of her, there was a kind of quaintness about her. She was very small. She dressed in a medieval-looking black habit. She had a kind of a little speech impediment. She spoke without any notes, with such empathy and enthusiasm and interest and insight that it was just hard to turn away from her once you, once you saw her. That's how I discovered her, and that's how most people knew her. That was a, a kind of brief interregnum in her life, which was mostly uh, in her earlier life as spent as a, as a member of a religious community, the School Sisters of Notre Dame, in England and in South Africa, which is where she was born, which was a teaching order. She entered when she was 16. She was born in 1930. And all of her child and all of her life, she had this deep, mystical thirst for God and a desire to become a nun without really understanding that joining a teaching order meant that she would spend most of her time in the classroom with kids and teenagers, and which was not at all really what she felt called to. And over many years, she asked whether she could be relieved to spend more time in prayer and was always told, no, that's not God's will for you until finally she had just a complete physical, mental breakdown, basically. And they decided, okay, we should just let her be. And she was dispensed from her order, from her vows, and allowed to adopt the life she was always attracted to, which was to become a hermit in England, on the grounds of a Carmelite monastery. She was not a member of the monastery, but she lived in a trailer, or what you call a caravan, on the grounds of the monastery, and devoted herself entirely to prayer. She was really, some of your listeners might be familiar with Julian of Norwich, who, a you know, 14th century anchorist in Norwich, not very far away from where Sister Wendy lived, who spent most of her life enclosed, you know, in a cell from which she never left, just devoted entirely to prayer and reflecting on her mystical experiences of God. She was somebody that, that I think Sister Wendy both vocationally and temperamentally identified with very much. But she was, had an interest in art. And she began doing little reflections and writing about art just to raise some money for the monastery. And it was there that she was discovered, so, so to speak, and put on this public stage, which was very uncongenial to her. But she turned out to have enormous charm and a kind of gift for this. And she really felt it was a ministry, that talking about art was a way for her to, to direct people in the direction of God, the source of beauty, for people who were not familiar or comfortable with that kind of language. Now, when she got too old to do that anymore, she was very happy to go back to her regular life of solitude and prayer. And when she became too old to live by herself in this caravan, they moved her into a cell within the monastery enclosure. And that's where our relationship really took off, which was just in the last three years of her life.
0: Well, and you're mentioning now about how she began as a school sister of Notre Dame and hadn't quite realized what all was involved with that in terms of the public-facing aspect of her ministry. She wanted a much more cloistered life, a much more contemplative life. Help us understand how she reconciled that with being on television. That is a tremendously public ministry. It makes you, if you think about the parasocial relationships that people create with actors and characters on the TV. We feel like we have intimacy with these people. That must have been, I don't even know the words, but how did she reconcile that with her desire to be contemplative?
1: i never even really heard a good explanation for that. It's not just that she, her vocation, she felt, was to be a contemplative, devoted to prayer, but as it became very clear, as I got to know her more deeply through our correspondence, she was just temperamentally, you know, introvert It does not even begin to describe it. (laughs) She was a person who kind of could be in the world, but not of it. She liked people all right. She was able to be charming and she enjoyed meeting the people on her travels, whether museum curators or art critics or television producers or interviewers like Bill Moyers and people like that. But she really held people at a distance. And somehow I think that perhaps made it possible for her. Someone else, a more extroverted kind of person or more oriented toward interaction with other people probably would have drowned in all of that experience. But somehow she was able to maintain her kind of interior sense of solitude, even when she was doing these things. When it was all over, she was very happy that it was over. And it was just a phase that she went through. And she was glad it was over and was able to devote herself to what she considered her true vocation, but she felt that it had done some good and that maybe it was the most apostolic work she'd ever performed in her life. People, I think, were fascinated by her, but also didn't really know her very well because when she'd be interviewed, she did not chattel about her childhood and her formative experiences. She really only wanted to talk about the things that were of deepest importance to her, God and holiness, prayer, and so people would encourage her, as I did as a publisher, to reflect more on her life story or her journey. And she thought that was a ridiculous thing to do. It was of no one's. Not only was it of no interest to in nobody, but it was nobody's business in a way. And she thought that was absurd. So she had always maintained this kind of a certain cloak of invisibility, which I somehow found a
0: way of penetrating. Well, for the sake of my listeners as we're setting the table here, I also want to make sure it's clear to them from the outside when you look at someone and you say that she's a nun, I think that we have a kind of very general picture of what that is. So Sister Wendy was a religious sister, so she was a part of a the women religious is the technical language. But there's a distinction between kind of generally women religious and nuns, and then within that smaller sphere She also described herself as a consecrated virgin, and I wonder if you could help us line out the distinctions between religious sister, nun, and consecrated virgin, just so that my listeners are clear about how Sister Wendy's devotion really played out in her daily life.
1: Those kind of uh, distinctions were maybe more obvious or well-defined in an earlier age. Now people use sisters or nuns kind of interchangeably. But sisters would generally refer to those who were involved in some kind of ministry or apostolic uh, work. In this country, we're very familiar with the sisters who ran hospitals and orphanages and schools in particular. Now, we you know we, we say women religious uh, generally to kind of uh, refer to them. Nuns was a word that replied. It was sort of a monastic kind of like women who lived in an enclosed monastery like the Carmelites or Benedictines, Trappistines or clairs, and would not be normally seen by the outside world, but devote themselves to prayer. They would do some kind of work within the monastery, perhaps to support themselves, but they were really more dedicated to contemplative life, focused on the prayer and the the, the, the Eucharist. And that was not just for their own sanctification, but, but their way of serving the world through their prayers. Now, what Sister Wendy would have been leaving this order of teaching nuns, nun, she did not become a Carmelite nun. She received a special dispensation to take vows as a consecrated virgin and hermit. So, in effect, living the ascetic life and prayer life of a nun, but without being a member of an actual community. And so, she was under the authority of a bishop, maybe. And she lived there by the permission of the prioress of the community. So even when she moved into the monastery, she was not a member of that community. She continued to call herself Sister Wendy. Didn't like it when people just called her Wendy back then, Sister Wendy. And the habit was something that she just sort of designed for herself, which had almost a sort of more medieval kind of look to it.
0: This is what I really want to make sure that my listeners are grasping, that within Catholicism, there are worlds within worlds, and that there are religious communities within Catholicism. We oftentimes think of Catholicism as a kind of authoritarian monolith, but what you're describing here is in many ways, in devoting herself selflessly to the ministries of the church and this apostolic witness, she was both able to put herself under authority, but also to do it in some ways that surprised me as I began to learn about it in terms of the kind of individual tailoring that you're describing, even down to her mode of dress, which was as much chosen as it was a kind of gesture towards a more medieval time. Now, these are my words, not yours. As I'm saying all this, am I understanding some of the complexities of this? or wendy or would you say it in a different way
1: i think you've got it pretty well it's funny she said that i asked her you know some guys would say do you think you could have imagined yourself becoming an an anchoress like julian of norwich and closed within a cell and she said oh that would have been my idea of heaven it's not really done anymore but she also said i at one time uh, when i realized the distinction i would have loved to become a carmelite but in fact the lights that i've chosen. Allows me much more solitude than I would as a carmelite. And she was, she felt that she, had, uh, through grace, had found her way to the kind of perfect situation calling
0: for her. Well, so let's go ahead and take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll dig into how it was that you came to have a relationship through correspondence with Sister Wendy. But for listeners that are just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Ellsberg. He is the publisher and editor-in-chief of Orbis Books, and he's the editor of five volumes of writings by Dorothy Day and the author of many books on saints, including All Saints, The Saint's Guide to Happiness, and A Living Gospel, Reading. God's story in holy lives? Today we're talking about a collected volume of letters between Robert Ellsberg and Sister Wendy Beckett entitled, Dearest Sister Wendy, A Surprising Story of Faith and Friendship. And Sister Wendy, as we've been describing, was a consecrated hermit who lived on the grounds of the Quittenham Carmelite Monastery in England. She's best known for her commentaries on art, both in the television series Sister Wendy's Odyssey and in many books. She passed away in 2018. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Robert Ellsberg. He's the publisher and editor-in-chief of Orbis Books. He's the editor of five volumes of writings by Dorothy Day and the author of many books on saints. Today we're talking about a book that collects a series of letters of correspondence between himself and Sister Wendy Beckett, who was a consecrated hermit who lived on the grounds of a Carmelite monastery in England, best known for her commentaries on art and her television series Sister Wendy's Odyssey. Today we're talking about this book, Dearest Sister Wendy, A Surprising Story of Faith and Friendship. Well, your connection to Sister Wendy, I'm sure that you knew about her from her work on Sister Wendy's Odyssey, her TV show about art, but really it began, as I understand it, when she wrote to you as in your role as the publisher of Orbis Books asking if she could get perhaps a damaged multi-volume set of commentaries donated to her monastery. I wonder if you could flesh out that story for us. How did the correspondence and the relationship with Sister Wendy begin in this first phase when it was less intimate and more formal?
1: Yes, it began, I should look up exactly what year that was, but I received a postcard, a little letter in Sister Wendy's handwriting, With a little sticker on it, Sister Wendy Beckett. I I immediately uh, sat up straight. Uh, I knew her from the television program. I never imagined that we would ever have any contact with one another. And as you said, she asked if we could possibly donate or sell some damaged copies of this expensive uh, series of volumes on Vatican II. I immediately said I'd be happy to donate those to the monastery, which turned out to be the best investment I ever made of, of free books. And from that, we began to exchange occasional notes. I had edited volumes of writings of Dorothy Day, which she absolutely loved. Dorothy Day was one of her favorite people. In fact, she was on a BBC program where they asked her to take along three books to a desert island, and one of them was Dorothy Day's Diaries. I had also written books about saints, and she had very generously endorsed some of those. And I even then got to publish several books by her, not particularly significant books, but a couple of books on on primitive icons, a book of commentaries on biblical paintings. And so from that, we had a, a kind of, a, I would say, kind of business sort of relationship, a little bit more than that, because they were friendly, but not intimate. And it was very clear that she did not encourage protracted correspondence or relationships. And that, that I respected those boundaries. In fact, at one point, she said to me, I enjoy your letters, but If I am to really dedicate myself to my vocation, I really don't have space for correspondence that's not about something really important. So that was, I thought, was closing the door on all of that. And that was fine. The years go by, and I I should also note about this correspondence, one of the things that discouraged correspondence was she had absolutely indecipherable handwriting. Her notes, which would be on hotel stationery or postcards or whatever, You had to really have a magnifying glass. And even then you could only get about 60, 65% of what she was actually saying. I think that there was even an unconscious dimension to that, that her kind of disappearing into her handwriting, not encouraging you to write. Some of my staff members would get excited and was like, again, who can figure out what this letter says? And everyone would pass it around and expand it on a Xerox machine and try to figure it out letter by letter. And gradually people got tired of that enterprise. (laughs) Just needed Sir sort of Rosetta Stone to understand it. So that was one of the things that changed when she moved into the monastery. She was too old now to live by herself. She was evidently too old to try to write even an uh, impenetrable uh, you know, handwritten letter. But one of the Carmelite sisters would attend to her, uh, come and bring her food every day, help her with her correspondence on a laptop computer so she would dictate her responses, wheel her to mass, and that was pretty much for contact with the outside world. So all of this happened in, in 2016. I got a note from Sister Leslie, the nun who was helping her, saying, we sent you an Easter card, and it was returned, which was because our post office address had changed. So I sent her the new address. I said it was so nice to hear from her. I mentioned that we were publishing a book of go that I thought would interest her. Well, it did interest her, and Sister Wendy, then the next letter came from Sister Wendy, dictated to Sister Leslie expressing her interest in that and that led to our talking about other books that i had published in a series called modern spiritual masters and i began sending her these volumes and she responded with incredible excitement she was a very avid reader she read several books a day she was utterly voracious when it came to books and from that kind of talking about things that we shared in common our interest in in saints and the question of holiness in particular Suddenly, it became obvious that this was ongoing. I would write her a letter, she would write back. And this became a daily exchange, virtually. Almost every day for the next three years, I would get a letter from Sister Wendy. And these were not little, short little things, they were were deep letters. You know, I invited her, I said, It'd be wonderful if you would write more about your own journey, your own story. And she said, Oh, that's rubbish. No one would be interested in that. She said, Possibly if somebody asked me questions, I could answer them, but they'd have to be real questions. So I said, I've got lots of questions. I began asking, well, what's the life of of a inside a Carmelite monastery? What does a contemplative do all day? How did you come to this vocation? Do you always know that you were drawn to this? She said, oh, well, these questions are utterly boring to me. I'm not interested in them at all. And I thought, okay, well, that's, you know, I I didn't mean that's where it was going to end. I thought that's just where I'm going to start. But what happened is that I began to write more about myself about my own life and my own journey and reflecting on the ways that I had experienced God's presence in my own life story. And she began to respond to this. And in turn, I think for the first time in her life, really looking back and asking questions about her own story because she'd always lived in the presence of God and she thought that was all that mattered. And, you know, there was nothing to be learned from self-examination. When people say, well, you must know yourself, she thought, why on earth must you know yourself? It was funny. i never really met anybody quite like that who was that incurious about trying to figure out how they got to where they are, any regrets about, you know, things that they'd learned, things they'd changed, you know. But something began to come out of this. And at at a certain point, she said, you know, it occurs to me that the book you were describing might be here in our correspondence. And that was only a, a matter of weeks, you know, into this. It was the first sign that I had that she, she felt there might be a, a wider purpose or audience of significance in what we were sharing, because it wasn't just idle chit-chat, as she said. It was really a, a deep kind of communion between us in which we were both kind of cheering each other on in our own efforts to put into words uh, our faith and, and God's presence in our lives, And for me, it was taking all just the dailiness of my life, the things I went through with my kids, with my friends, with my work, with my reading, with my work, writing about saints and Dorothy Day, even my dreams, and kind of putting that before her. And she would sort of put it on the altar of her heart and and kind of give it this blessing and return it to me. And on the other side, I was enlarging her kind of view. She lived in this room without any windows, literally. (laughs) not just metaphorically. And she said that through our correspondence, she felt that she was entering into a much larger world and a much larger sense of connection to the rest of the world. And it also turned her mind inward in a way to think about her own life in a way that she had always avoided. And I think she always thought of that as a kind of virtue (laughs) that was because she was so close to God or something like that. And I think she began to see it as perhaps a, a kind of limitation in herself as well, that she had not dared to go there. And I saw her in the course of these years of our correspondence kind of opening up like a flower and beginning to bloom in a different way. And it, it certainly confirmed, I think, her feeling, in my sense, as we went along, that there was something really miraculous happening in this correspondence that was meant to be shared with a wider
0: audience. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Ellsberg. He's the publisher and editor-in-chief of Orbis Books, and we're discussing today a collected volume of his correspondence with Sister Wendy Beckett, who is best known for her commentaries on art, both in the television series Sister Wendy's Odyssey and in many books. The collected volume is called Dearest Sister Wendy, A Surprising Story of Faith and Friendship. I want to return to something you said a moment ago in describing Sister Wendy. You described her as incurious, and you said that she lived for these years of her life when you were in correspondence with her in a windowless room. What that made me think of was Julian of Norwich, who has come up in our conversation already. And for listeners who are unfamiliar with Julian's story, she was an anchoress at a cathedral. What that meant was literally she was sealed into a room that was attached to the foundation of the cathedral. When this happened, a funeral was held for her and she was declared dead as far as the world was concerned. She had left her worldly life behind to devote herself wholly, Julian did, to this life of contemplation. And you mentioned that Sister Wendy might have liked something like that, but that was not an option to her in the modern world. But it strikes me that that might be a source of this kind of incuriosity. If you are already dead to the world, then why should it matter the story about yourself? Because the story, as far as you're concerned, would already be written. So I'm curious about this incuriosity and how her perception of herself as possibly dead to the world or of no consequence played into the ways in which she initially engaged in this correspondence with you?
1: Well, you know, when I say in curiosity, I don't mean in curious about the world. And she was fascinated by art and literature. She read books on science and history. Uh, she didn't read the newspapers, but she, she was very interested in what was going on in the outside world and everything I shared with her. What I was referring to was a, a, a kind of an aversion to self-examination. And I think, yes, as you say, that was part of her vocation as a as a hermit. But it became clear as she described her own life that that was very much rooted in in her early childhood. Uh, that she, as you, as you read the letters, you see this theme that comes out of her feeling of oddness in the world. That she didn't quite fit, that people didn't understand her that She didn't quite understand them. You know, it might be possible even to speculate, as she did, that she was on the autism spectrum somewhere a little bit in the sense of not really relating typically in an empathetic kind of way with other people. She liked when she was in this community as a novice. The Other sisters didn't understand her. Her novice mistress didn't understand her. She was sent to Oxford to be a student. And the novice mistress said, well, you're not supposed to have friendships there. She took that very seriously and literally, and she didn't talk to another single student the entire time she was there. Her examiner was actually J.R. Tolkien, who was so taken by her, wanted her to do a PhD. Uh, But she said, no, that's not my vocation. So, you know, the thing about Julian and Norwich is actually interesting. Now, Julian went into becoming an anchorist after having this deep experience of being sick almost unto death and then having these mystical revelations that were so deep and complex that she really spent the entire rest of her life analyzing them and writing about them in a couple different versions. And it may be that that it was only in that kind of solitude of her anchor hold that she could be undisturbed by the rest of the world that wouldn't necessarily understand what she was writing. She was writing something almost for future Christians to understand. And in fact, her work was not known for centuries and only in the recent century has been discovered. And she's considered one of the kind of figures of all Christian history. Sister Wendy's view of God and Christ and the passion and the mercy of God, the love of God, the fact, that we are enclosed in the love of God, had a lot in common with uh, Julian Norwich. But, sister, but Julian Norwich did, like anchors at the time, had a window into the church and a window to the street where people could come and seek advice, spiritual counsel. Sister Wendy said, I would never have wanted that window on the street. <laughs> I asked her, is it possible? Sometimes I've heard that Julian might have had a, had a cat as a companion, you know, to keep down the mice and the rodents. And she said, it's possible. For myself, I would not want a cat because sharing the space with another creature and that kind of affectionate friendship and relationship would be too much of a distraction for my life of prayer. So it, even though she was not enclosed, you know, lock in the key, dead to the world in that way, she had sought for this kind of interior castle, as Teresa of Avila calls it, that she lived inside of. And that is how somehow I kind of found a, a key to open that up. And I would talk about things like the Enneagram, for instance. Some of your listeners know what that is, kind of a a popular device in in counseling and spiritual direction for understanding different personality types and how that plays into your own spirituality. For instance, not all saints are alike. And a St. Francis is very different from a Teresa of Avila or something like that. Thomas Merton is a particular kind of type and does not necessarily fit into the conventional monastic sort of mold. And she would say, I'm familiar with the Enneagram. Frankly, I find it repulsive. No interest in, in, in that sort of thing. And so that was, again, part of the story of what was so remarkable about this kind of journey in which she found herself becoming incredibly interested in everything about my life and what I shared with her. And that became a kind of mirror that allowed her to reflect and think more deeply about her own story.
0: Well, and I want to return to something that you said a few moments ago about the way in which this correspondence began to deepen from formality into intimacy. And you mentioned that as you began to talk more about yourself, she began to open up more about herself. What strikes me about this, my wife was a hospital chaplain for a number of years, and she has taught me a lot about the way that vulnerability plays into human relationships and that if you are wanting to create trust with someone, letting them know your own limitations and your own weaknesses is an invitation to them to begin to reflect on their own. Now, as I say this to you, I'm suggesting no subterfuge on your part, no, no trickery to try and get her to open up, but as I describe that mechanism of sharing your own vulnerability, inviting her own vulnerability, does that feel right to you or do you think that something else was going on here in this deepening correspondence.
1: Well, another aspect of that vulnerability for Sister Wendy was that she really had a a terminal illness. I mean, she was in her 80s, but in the very first letter she exchanged with me, I I learned that she had a, uh, a condition that was resulting in the hardening of her lungs, making it increasingly difficult for her to breathe. In the course of these years, she kept having little heart attacks. She would break her arm, all kinds of of physical ailments. It was clear that she was slowing down and reaching the end of her life. And that was not something that she feared. That was what she felt was the culmination of, of her entire life. One of the things that became a common ground for us was kind of reflection that I'd been doing over some time. I've been writing about saints, holy people on a daily basis, as well as my books. And I had really come to this kind of uh, conviction that the message of the saints is not just in their writings or their spiritual, you know, wisdom or teaching or, or the things they did, but is in their actual life story, that their story is a kind of living gospel. And that's one of the reasons why it's so interesting to read about them and why they're inspiring, not just because they did these amazing, miraculous things that we could never do, but that they make us look inward at God's presence in our own uh, story. You know, I think of someone like St. Augustine, for instance, who who writes his confessions, and it's looking at his whole life in light of his conversion. And in that light, he could see that God was present in his life, not just moments when the thought of God was completely far from him, this feeling that God was always there in that story. And I had felt that very much in my writing and work on the life of Dorothy Day. I saw it in people like Thomas Merton or Henry Nowen, people I had known or worked with. And in fact, that resulted in my being invited to Quiddinam to give a retreat on this subject. Uh, so I got to meet Sister Wendy in the year, a year before she died. And it resulted then in a book that, that, I, that I wrote, you know, during that last year or so called A Living Gospel, Reading God's Story in Holy Lives. So Sister Wendy was very responsive to that idea because she did deeply believe that we have this false idea that saints are this kind of perfect person never had any flaws, never had any failures, uh, where she saw them as a people on a journey, on a path. And maybe those we call saints are recognized, went very far on that path. But it's a path that all of us are called to, to walk. And the important thing is not getting it all right. But for her, it was always the earnestness and the strength of your desire. I desire to be closer to God. And that's what God notices and cares about, and not the times that we fall short. That was something that she instinctively understood, and yet she had never really applied that to her own life story, going back to think about her childhood, her relationship with her parents, uh, some of the strangeness of things. I was just so struck by the fact that her sister Wendy had this deep sense that she was called to be a contemplative, and she chose exactly the wrong way to go about it, uh, becoming a, a teaching sister. And yet, she could have just walked away from that, but she felt that, in fact, she remained obedient. And she let, finally, her own physical breakdown and the consent of her of her community set her free. And she ended up having, a, you know, ending up exactly where she was meant. And she was always then encouraging me to look more deeply at my own life in that way and to see the people who've been important in my life, the failures in my life, things that have broken my heart were as much a part of what had helped me progress on this path as the achievements, maybe even more so.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Ellsberg. He's publisher and editor-in-chief of Orbis Books, and we're talking about a collected set of correspondences that he had over a three-year period with Sister Wendy Beckett, who's probably best known for her commentaries on art, both on the television show Sister Wendy's Odyssey and in many books. The collected volume of correspondence is called Dearest Sister Wendy, a surprising story of faith and friendship. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Robert Ellsberg. He's publisher and editor-in-chief of Orbis Books, and we're talking about a collected volume that was recently published of correspondence between Robert Ellsberg and Sister Wendy Beckett, who is probably best known for her commentaries on art, both in the television series Sister Wendy's Odyssey and in many books. The collected volume is called Dearest Sister Wendy, A Surprising Story of Faith and Friendship. Well, throughout this conversation, we've been talking about various saints and other religious luminaries. We talked about Dorothy Day and Julian of Norwich and St. Teresa of Avila. But there are some other figures that arise in the correspondence between you and Sister Wendy. In particular, there's extended back and forth about Thomas Merton the monk who lived at the Gethsemane Monastery down in Kentucky, and also some exchanges about a more contemporary figure, Father James Martin. I wonder if we could talk about the way in which both of these figures enter into the correspondence between you and Sister Wendy. Let's begin with Thomas Merton. How did she feel about Merton, and how did her feelings change over time?
1: I was very interested that the name Thomas Merton came up in our very first letters. Uh, She introduced his name. I had personally been very affected by Merton's work and read all of his work, had written about him, had visited Gethsemane, had published uh, the various posthumous books of his writing. So I was keenly interested in Merton, one of the key figures in my own spiritual life and journey. Sister Wendy was also fascinated by Merton, and as I discovered, was absolutely an avid reader of his books. She would read them over and over again. I don't mean just the seven-story mountain. I mean obscure volumes of his correspondence. And and every volume of his diaries and, and everything he'd ever written his poetry, which she didn't like. She would read these books over and over and over again. And she would always have this ambivalence. She would express, on the one hand, he's a genius. He fascinates me. Uh of course Merton was, you know, much younger than she was. You know, she she almost talked about him as if he was like a, a younger brother or something. And yet she there was always this undertone of of disapproval that she felt that there was a falseness about him, that there was it all came too easily to him. He was too charming. He was too extroverted to be a real contemplative. He writes all the time about prayer, but he's, you know, writing, writing, writing all the time. She felt that he, in his journals, showed uh, the lack of spirit of obedience to his superiors, that he was always making exceptions for himself. And we would have back and forth about this, because I felt that she was a little too hard on him. I said that what was exceptional about him is that he shared so much of his own story. He didn't want to present himself as this perfect monk. He left his diaries and his letters and everything. And that he was clearly somebody who exemplifies a kind of what the Pope would call a journey faith, you know, somebody who was meeting God along the path and was always being called to go deeper and reflect more deeply, to go farther into the heart of what his vocation was. And that led him from being this pious monk who wrote an autobiography about how he became a Trappist monk. But that wasn't the end of his story. And he even had this turning point that's very famous in, you know, the Annals of Merton, where he says on the corner of 4th and Walnut in downtown Louisville, uh, he had this kind of mystical revelation where he said he realized that he loved all these people, that he wasn't separate from them. He thought before, maybe as a monk, he was leaving all the sin of the world to enter into this kind of perfect life of prayer and being close to God. And he realized that there is no separation. He said it was like awakening from a dream of separateness. I loved all these people. They belonged to, to me. They're all shining like the sun. The gate of heaven's everywhere, he says. And it, it wasn't just a momentary kind of insight. It reflected a, a kind of you know, turning point in his writing and in his spiritual attitude. After that, he, he says, my spirituality has to, it's like coming out of a chrysalis. It has to be much more engaged with the world and its problems and its sufferings, a deeper sense of compassion, a deeper sense of respect for other people who are not believers or, or of other faiths. He began exploring dialogue with Buddhism and Hinduism, religions of the East. He became very involved and engaged with questions of war and peace, nuclear war, Vietnam War, civil rights, et cetera. And that leads right up toward the end when he finally makes this last trip. He's allowed out of the monastery to go to a conference in, to, in Thailand where he, he, he he died suddenly. So I see this as, you know, Merton is not just this one thing. He's a, a work in progress. And I said, perhaps he represents a kind of bridge between an older ascetic kind of model of monasticism and a, and a kind of contemplative life that's more open to the world and accessible to other people as well who are inspired by his writing. Well, she would have nothing, none of that. And we would go back and forth, really heated kinds of arguments about it. I would always yield because I'm a type nine on the Enneagram and say, well, I'm more about these things than I do, but this is how it seems to me. So she never let the subject of Thomas Merton drop, though, always bringing it up. At one point, I said, I referred to, you know, he who will not be named, you know, Merton. You know, the, the Pope Francis came to, to America and singled out Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton and Martin Luther King and Abraham Lincoln as you know, four great Americans and everything. She thought, well, he is a great American, you know, no, no doubt about that. But as for a saint or, you know, whatever, she problems with that. Well, toward the end of the second year of our correspondence, she said, know, I'm reading again for the fifth time or something, these letters. And I realized I've been completely wrong about him. I've completely misjudged him. I'm trying to fit him into some box of, you know, what I consider to be, you know, monastic life. And he explodes all those categories. He doesn't, he doesn't fit in those boxes. And it's a sign of my own narrowness and rigidity that I wasn't able to recognize that. Now, if that were just a change in Sister Wendy about, oh, I changed my mind about Thomas Merton, that'd be one thing. But it seemed to me almost a kind of sub-theme in the course of this, the narrative of this book and our relationship of Sister Wendy having her own sort of fourth and walnut kind of of experience of awakening from a dream of separateness, of this kind of spurious idea of of holiness, you know, as Merton said, and opening her heart in a more compassionate way to the idea that there are other ways. And if she had not appreciated, that was not because they were wrong, but maybe a f- reflection of her own narrowness in her categories. And I think if you read the book, you see just a new kind of lightness in her a new freedom. I think that Sister Wendy, in the love that we shared, I really there's no other word for it, that her heart, her capacity to receive and express love in a deeper way really came to life. And the fact that this should happen in, this, in the life of this elderly hermit in the last year of her life is extremely moving to me.
0: Well, and from that, I also want to shift now to her thoughts on Father James Martin. And for listeners who may be unfamiliar, Father Martin is a Jesuit, but he has been probably best known recently for his compassionate ministry directed towards the LGBTQ plus community. And there were points in the book where you updated Sister Wendy about some of the latest controversies that were happening around Father Martin. And I was very struck by her compassionate response to the whole situation, particularly to the publicness of his ministry and how that opened him up to various types of attack. I wonder if you'd be willing to speak a little bit about that portion of the correspondence as well.
1: Father Jim Martin is a close personal friend, and I, I've also known him since he was in seminary. So I published uh, his first book, which was a story of his uh, work with refugees in Kenya, and since then, he has leapt from kind of success to success and becoming very, very popular, maybe the most popular Catholic spiritual writer of recent years he on television. He was on the Colbert Report. He's constantly being quoted in the New York Times, etc. Now, that was all before he then took up this, I think, very brave and important ministry in building a bridge to the LGBTQ community. And that has earned him a lot of support, even from Pope Francis but also incredible vilification and calumny and, and and hatred and so I was sharing with sister Wendy as I did about all my friends how disturbing it was that he was enduring all this and she said I think it's not a bad thing for him that he's been so successful that this experience of the cross in a way will bind him more deeply to Jesus and will make his ministry even more important so she said I personally for him I'm sorry that he has to suffer this but I'm also kind of glad. Now, it, the wider context of that, of course, was that Sister Wendy, like me, we were both great fans of Pope Francis, and particularly what seemed to me to us that he was following in Jesus's steps of putting the emphasis on, on mercy and compassion rather than on judgment, on, on enforcing rules and, and, and doctrines. Uh, really, seeing God in other people with all of the messiness of their lives and loving them. And so she felt very much, it was a kind of theme in a lot of our writings as well, this kind of incredulity that there were so many people, bishops and cardinals and theologians and whatever, who felt such anger toward Pope Francis because of his more merciful brand of Christianity. And she felt it was entirely in the spirit of Jesus. And that the, or these kind of critics of Pope Francis or of Jim Martin were very much reproducing the role of the antagonists in the gospel, who were always accusing Jesus of consorting with sinners, of being too merciful, not enforcing the rules and the laws. So again, that was very consistent with her attitude toward, you know, where her heart was in the church. But there were one, you know, still one other kind of aspect of it, which was that Sister Wendy, for all of having spent her life in this kind of cloistered and then remote and closed to life of solitude, was not some antiquated backward-looking zealot about rules and regulations and doctrines. She was extremely open and to the sense that we have so little idea of who God is and God's love and mercy, and are always trying to kind of put that into our own little boxes. And so on the question of sexuality, for instance, or the question of the ordination of women, she was very open to and trusting in the idea that the church's mind would change on these things. And that was a good thing. She said, it'll be, I'm sure, incredible that we'll look back one day on the idea that women couldn't be ordained or that we could not understand all the different varieties of sexuality and the way people that were created. It was one of the funny things about Sister Wendy and Bert, even her television program, you'll find that almost any article about Sister Wendy, they'll say she's very, she's not prudent she'll talk about the human anatomy and the body and all this kind of thing. And she was so impatient with that because it represented their stereotype conception of what a nun is. she should be shocked by by nakedness. She said, no, there's nothing ridiculous or dirty about sex or about the way our
0: bodies are are constructed. And she had that just a kind of incredible sense
1: of freedom about
0: those things. So you mentioned something a moment ago regarding Father Martin, and that was she looked at his fame and that, these attacks on him were perhaps a corrective to help to keep him humble, and you use the word the experience of the cross. And what strikes me is that at several points in the correspondence with Sister Wendy, she thought about her own frailty in exactly that kind of language. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but she had a fall or some kind of illness, and she would say, this is just a small sliver of what our Lord endured for us. And it made me think of the last years of Pope John Paul II where he literally lived his illnesses in public as a way of pointing towards Christ. And she it seemed to me that Sister Wendy was very much looking at these moments of mortality, these little reminders that she was limited by her human body as ways of pointing both herself and others towards the suffering and the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, these are my words, not yours, but as I'm saying this back to you, does that sound right, or would you say it in a different way?
1: Well, I would say that a lot of that is kind of boilerplate religious language that almost any nun would would, uh, identify with, and this idea that We find meaning in our suffering in identifying with the sufferings of Christ, if we accept that in the spirit of love, that there's no experience that takes us away from God, and that holding on to God in prayer in those kind of experiences even gives a a deeper kind of power and impact to our prayers and our intentions. But she also believed that, that the cross and the resurrection are kind of intimately connected to each other, and that all of our life is a kind of trivial away in order to enable us to experience life more deeply. And that goes right up to the end of our lives and our ultimately our death, that the death that suffering does not have the last word. And we can look at that as a kind of enemy, you know, uh, that's depriving us of our happiness, or we can uh, just go look at it through the cross as a, as a, as a mystery in which uh, we're not separated from God because God experienced this most intimately, the cross.
0: As we're moving towards the end of our conversation, I recognize that I'm asking you a question that probably you could speak at length for hours about. I'm wondering if you would be willing to share with my listeners how you see, now looking back, how your life has been altered and changed by this relationship and correspondence with Sister Wendy.
1: It's wonderful to, to feel that there's somebody who kind of really knows you in the deepest way. Uh, and sometimes we get to know one another through working together, living together. It's a, an unusual experience to get to know someone so deeply that you've never met. It became a kind of sacred space, really. I felt like I was on, on holy ground. And holy ground didn't mean that we just talked about God, it meant that in that perspective, everything that I talked about, the flowers outside, the difficulties I was having at work, problems in relationships with members of my family, all these experiences of love and loss, that they were all blessed and God was present in that space. And having that experience with Sister Wendy made it so much more possible for me to see that more widely in in my my own life. And I after it was all, when, it was, when she died, I spent weeks just reading through the whole thing. And of course, what, what appears in the book is is only about a third of almost of, of all the words that we exchanged. And afterwards, I thought, what in the world was this miracle, like this kind of meteor of grace that landed in my life? And I knew that I would never be the same again. It gathered up all kinds of things that I knew or I believed or I'd experienced. And she kept on always saying, do you have any idea how blessed your life has been? And that often had to do with extraordinary people that I'd experienced. But it also meant my kind of healing through painful experiences in in my life, coming to wholeness and being able to accept those broken places with more compassion in my own life and, and I hope more compassion toward
0: others. Well, Robert Ellsberg I have to say, first of all, because you have lost a friend, I just want to express my deepest sympathies on that front, but also I want to express my joy because this correspondence that you have brought into the world in this volume, dearest Sister Wendy, was a blessing to me to read. I'm sure it will be a blessing to my listeners. I'm so grateful for the time and care that you and Sister Wendy put into building this correspondence. Thank you for going back, sifting through the voluminous contents of it and finding ways to give us themes and through paths so that this volume not only has a glimpse into a deepening intimacy, but a coherence that will help us all as readers readers to deepen our own spiritual lives. Thank you for taking the time to compile this book, but thank you especially for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners.
1: Thank you very much, David. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege.
0: We've been speaking today with Robert Ellsberg. He is publisher and editor-in-chief of Orbis Books. He's the editor of five volumes of writings by Dorothy Day and the author of many books on saints, including All Saints, The Saint's Guide to Happiness, and A Living Gospel, Reading God's Story in Holy Lives. Today we've been discussing... A collected set of correspondences between himself and Sister Wendy Beckett, who is probably best known for her commentaries on art, both in the television series Sister Wendy's Odyssey and in many books. The volume is entitled Dearest Sister Wendy A Surprising Story of Faith and Friendship. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keejip. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio.